Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. So in this chapter, the 10th chapter, called the Table of Nations, showing the developments of the line of the three children, the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, just in a nutshell, Shem's descendants largely become Asia. There are some other things that happen there, but I'm just trying to give you kind of a, a nutshell. Japheth's descendants largely become Europe, and Ham's descendants largely become Africa, even though we know that Canaan, one of uh, Ham's sons, obviously became the Canaanites, and the Canaanites were difficult people for the line of Shem and Japheth to deal with because you've got, obviously, uh, the land of Canaan in dispute. Who owns this? This was the land that God had promised to the children of Abraham. Uh, Yet, when they go there to take the promised land, guess who's there? The Canaanites. So, uh, the descendants of Ham not only are a part of them, but also uh, mainly a... Uh, his descendants also settled Africa. Now you just kind of get an idea of how they spread out. But Shem's line, if you follow that, uh, was unaffected by the Tower of Babel and the confusion and the dispersion. Because God had a plan coming through Shem, and I'll talk more about that in just a minute. But Ham's line... uh, Their descendants were involved in the dispersion at the Tower of Babel, and when they were dispersed, then there there were a lot of nations that developed off of that. God's blessing to all of humanity to be fruitful and multiply went to everybody. This just did not just go to Shem. It went to everybody. They had the blessing, the privilege of populating the world. And so all of them, all of the descendants of Shem and Ham and Japheth did. And God revealed himself eventually as a more personal God, having conversations with people and directing them and instructing them and making covenants with them. He did that through the descendants of the line of Shem. So it was through... The children, the descendants of the line of Shem, who eventually became the Shemites, the Semites, the Jews, the children of Abraham, that God revealed himself to the entire world. Not through any of the other lines, but just that one single line God chose to reveal himself. Now, if you look in the 10th chapter, and you don't need to do that now, but you can keep this in mind, and look at the 11th chapter, you'll find that there is a genealogy of Shem in both chapters. But in the 10th chapter, the genealogies both show 
that a descendant of Shem was Eber, and Eber had two sons, Peleg and Joktan. The tenth chapter, though, follows Joktan and his descendants to the Tower of Babel. Now, I said Shem and his line was unaffected by that, but through that branch, they went to the Tower of Babel, and then there was the dispersion, and it becomes difficult after that to figure out exactly who of them that were lost in this Tower of Babel debacle uh, became the descendants of who. But then Peleg is followed in the 11th chapter. And you might notice in the 10th chapter that there's a little footnote about Peleg that says in the days of Peleg the earth was divided. And you may ponder, well, what does that mean, the earth was divided? Probably what it means is that it's referring to the dispersion because chronologically, uh, chapter 11 happened before the information that is available in chapter 10. So the table of nations was given, the knowledge was gleaned as a result of the dispersion of nations in chapter 11, but the information was placed before the event actually happened. So whenever it comes to Peleg and says, and in his days the land was divided, the earth was divided, it's probably referring to just simply the fact that people were dispersed because of the Tower of Babel. Now there's another theory on that. And that is that uh, one popular teaching, which I do not adhere to, is that in those days, the days of Peleg, the earth was divided, referring to the people having dis been dispersed across the, uh, uh, the face of the earth, and then the continental drift, as the continents drifted apart, which that theory tries to explain how did people end up across the ocean somewhere, uh, did they swim? Did they have boats? So that's one of the theories. But I don't, I don't buy into that theory because I think that any scientist, any geologist would argue vehemently with you that the uh, drifting of the continents did not occur that late in the history of the world after it was already populated uh, after uh, Adam. Uh, nevertheless, that's just free information. I will not charge you for that this time. The descendants of Ham, the Canaanites, never did become slaves of the descendants of Shem. Remember the pronouncement by Noah after he had discovered the shameful way he had been treated by his son Ham. And he says to Ham, uh, may, what he, to, to Canaan, actually Ham's son, may your descendants be the slaves of my other two sons and their descendants. And as I said, that did not necessarily mean that God had to honor that or that was a... Uh, a prophecy that was being brought forth inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was kind of one of these things that Noah was just angry and he was wishing ill will on, on Ham. Like, you know, if somebody would get mad at somebody and say, may a herd of wild elephants trample your flower bed. Well, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen, but it does express how they feel about you. And so Noah is not very happy with Ham and he says, I, I, I hope you end up being slaves to your brother forever. Well, as it turns out, uh, some did, but the Canaanites did not really end up becoming slaves. They were defeated by the line of Shem, but they didn't really end up becoming slaves. As a matter of fact, the line of Shem ended up becoming slaves to a lot of Gentile powers, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and they were slaved, enslaved quite often. So we see the sentiments of Noah not being happy but there's something else that happened 
to make this bad blood between them. When Noah spoke this and certain parts of that seemed to come to pass, was it because it was empowered by the Spirit? I, my suggestion is no, it's not because it was empowered by the Spirit. Uh, the second is, was it merely coincidental? That Probably part of it was coincidental. But then there's another option, and that is perhaps what we're seeing is the influence of Ham on his descendants. After all, we see Ham's behavior was reprehensible. And then we see that God's blessing was not on Ham, but it was on Shem, because Shem and Japheth's behavior was admirable and respected by God. So we have to pause and wonder, how much did Ham's bad behavior influence his family? And that's a very sobering thought, because I think that's probably one of the more important points being made here, is somewhere along the line, somebody lives a, a life that is not a life of, of reverence and dedication to God, and that has a way of, of multiplying itself through the generations. You have a lot of influence, the way you live your life, on how your family comes out. Now, there's no guarantee because you're a Christian, your children are going to be Christians. There's no guarantee because you are a sinner that your children are going to be sinners. But do not disregard the fact that there is influence there. And let me just give you a, an example of that kind of influence. Because you're, you're not isolated from your family, your children pick up habits and speech and attitudes and life philosophies from you. They learn their priorities from you. And I see this quite often. You do too. You see children that have mannerisms that you say, that is exactly your mom. That is exactly your dad. It might just be facial expressions. It might be gestures. Uh, it might be the way they look at life. And you say, you sound just exactly like your parent. Because they have such a tremendous influence. My dad came from a family of seven children. Five of the children grew up to be non-smokers. One girl and one boy grew up to be smokers. Of those two who became smokers, their children also became smokers, and many of the grandchildren became smokers. So when we had family reunions, it was always the family from the line of this daughter, this, this sister, and this, this brother, that they were all the smokers. And from the other line, virtually that did not exist in the family because there was influence from the parents as they took up habits, as they did things, that the children were influenced to do the same thing. Did the children have to? No. But they made the decision to do that as influenced by their parents. On my mother's side, she was one of 14 children. Grandma and Grandpa Gannon were two of the most godly people that you would ever want to meet. And certainly in my eyes, two of the most godly people I've ever personally known. Wonderfully devoted to God and loved God intensely and, and Grandpa Gannon had very little life 
outside of the fact that when he's retired, he loved to sit and read his Bible. <laughs> that was his hobby. He loved God. And when you talk to him, he wanted to tell you about how much he loved God and how good God was. That's all I remember Grandpa Gannon talking about. It's just He just loved God. He was a godly man. He had 14 children. And out of those 14 children, one of the girls married a man who was an alcoholic. Some of their children became alcoholics and to this day are part of Alcoholics Anonymous as recovering alcoholics. I, you did not see that happen in the children of the other siblings that did not marry alcoholics or themselves become alcoholics, but you saw the alcoholism carried forth from the parentage. Now, I've, I've, I've just given you two examples of how much influence a parent has. And we look at what happened to the descendants of Ham, how much of that was the prophecy of Noah forcing them to do that because it was the word of God, or how much of it was just the fact that Ham had influenced his sons in ungodly and rude and crude manners, who influenced their children, who influenced their children. And the line of Ham was a mess. Can that be traced back to Ham? At least in part it can. Because he had influence. And so here is the sobering thought. You're not an island, sir. Or you, miss. What you do with your life, you think is your business. And it doesn't really matter what you do. But I'm telling you, you have influence over your children. Because they watch what you do far more. They emulate what you do far more than obey what you say. If you live one way, but you say, I'm going to teach my children differently, they will choose to follow your example rather than your instruction. And I cannot imagine anything that can be more devastating, more heartrending, than to realize when it's all said and done, and all the sum total of life has been tabulated that you have children or grandchildren who are in hell because of your influence. Because you opened doors to things that you thought you could play with and you're going to be okay. But it was not okay for them. Because you went places and did things that you thought, what does it hurt? It's just me. It's not just you. Your family is watching. Your family trusts you. Your family believes in you. Even if you're doing the wrong thing, your family believes, but dad did it. Therefore, there must be something redeemable and okay about this. Therefore, I'm entitled to be just like dad. I'm entitled to be just like mom. And your influence can be so far-reaching. There can be people in your family generations from now who will be going to hell because you Open the door for something that got passed on. Not some weird spiritual thing that attached itself to your family line, but real physical human influence that caused somebody to miss God. I'm convinced I'm in the ministry today and I love God today because I had a godly grandmother and a godly grandfather that loved and served him with all of their heart which got passed on to my mother 
My dad did not come from a family with that much ambitious uh, dedication to God. I know that's a fancy way of saying this, but I, I, I know Grandpa Rooks believed in God, worked the railroad. He was gone most of the time when he came home. He forced his church, his kids, we are going to church. And he did his best to raise them in church. But he, didn't, he did not have that passion for God that depth of walk with God. Grandpa Rooks was a little rough around the edges. He was one that was depending on grace <laughs> a whole lot more than he was trying to please God with his lifestyle. But Grandpa Gannon loved God with all his heart. And somehow it got passed down through my mom. And somehow my dad escaped from that easy, greasy life of, of taking advantage of grace. And he got on fire for God too. So now I've got two parents myself who love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And they were the same behind closed doors as they were out in public. They were not different kinds of Christians in hiding as they were out in public. They loved God at home. They loved God at church. They loved God on the streets. And somehow, that got down in me. And I love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And I don't want to be an excuse for any of my children or any of my grandchildren to think they can play fast and loose with God because we saw what Grandpa was like. We saw what Dad was like when he was not in front of people. I want to be the kind of influence to them 24 hours a day, in church, out of church, at home, anywhere, that they know I'm sincere about my relationship with God because I don't want... A little rook's coming off my branch, going to hell because I opened the door for them. We come now getting past this table of nations and recognizing the wicked influence Ham most likely had on his descendants. Now to the 11th chapter and this famous story of the confusing of the languages at the Tower of Babel. We are told as the 11th chapter opens up now, there, the whole world was of one language. And then we're also told that there was this group of people that continued to migrate eastward. I don't know what there was about eastward, but they migrated eastward. When Adam and Eve left the garden, they went eastward. And whenever Cain migrated out, he went eastward. And uh, whenever these people at the, after the uh, flood had, had grown into a considerable population and the whole world was still one language, there was a group of people that it's, it says they, they went eastward. So they kept spreading out. But they didn't go extremely far. They went as far as an area known as Mesopotamia. And that's a familiar term to most of you. Uh, a land called Shinar, which was basically what we know today as the region of Mesopotamia. And the word Mesopotamia literally means between two rivers, which means it was, a, it was an area between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Mesopotamia is often called the cradle of civilization because that's where people settled. And you begin to see things that were innovations that were developed in the Mes Mesopotamian area and religions that were developed in that area. It, Godless religions, idolatrous religions, but nevertheless, uh, religions were developed there. So the, the, here in this cradle of civilization between the two rivers, today if you want to think about it, it's, it's largely occupied by Iraq. It includes small parts of what we know today as Turkey and Syria. And the ancient city of Babylon there 
which really when you're talking about the Tower of Babel, that is the word it used for virtually the city that there was, ancient Babylon. The two are synonymous, so it could have been called the Tower of Babylon, but the Tower of Babel. Once again, I take you back as I have in sermons past, and we talk about the pronunciation of B-A-B-E-L. So uh, I'm going with label, Babel. And that's probably uh, up for debate. A lot of people, as I mentioned before, are accustomed to calling it the Tower of Babel because they associate the name with the babbling, the confusion of the languages as one person who suddenly starts speaking a foreign language is trying to talk and nobody can understand. So we think, well, that must be babbling. But the etymology, and there's a fancy $10 word for you, the etymology or the tracing back of words to find their origins, that the English word babble does not have any connection whatsoever to the word Babel. They just happen to have some similarity. So people often will call it the Tower of Babel, Tower of Babel. I will recognize it no matter which one you call it. That's not a problem to me. But this Tower of Babel, where the people had gathered and decided they were going to build a tower, some of these people had moved away from the group over into the whole world that was speaking one language and migrated over into the Mesopotamian area. And there they settled and they began to build cities and, and structures. Now the interesting thing about it, they were formerly in an area that was uh, more or less Palestine. And if you know anything about the geography of Palestine, it's a stony area. There's lots of rocks. So when they build in that area, I'll give you three guesses what they built out of. And the first two don't count. They built out of stone. They built out of rock. So they move into the Mesopotamian area, and they don't have any rocks over there. Now what do we do? Well, they made mud bricks, and that's where we begin to see the first evidence of baked bricks as they fashioned their own building stones, so to speak. Fashioned it with mud, baked it, hardened it, and began to brick. So when you get in the Mesopotamian area, the architecture changes because you build with what you've got. What do we got? We got mud. Well, let's do something with it. So they built with the bricks, and they used some of the pitch that was available in the area, the tar or whatever, and that became the mortar that they used. And in this Mesopotamian area, there was a structure that became very popular. It was called a ziggurat. And the ziggurat was a structure that somewhat loosely was like a pyramid because it starts off with a large base and gradually goes smaller as you go up. Now, in the Bible there was a Tower of Babel that when we say tower, our American mind goes to a structure that seems to be tall and slender, right? Towers. You've got cell towers, telephone towers. You've got uh, uh, the Sears Tower. Uh, Ranger towers. But this was not a tower at all in the American understanding of a tower. It was a ziggurat. And, and the ziggurat was different from the uh, pyramid because the pyramid had internal chambers and passageways. It contained something. But the ziggurat was solid mounds. 
There were walls that were built, and the inside of the walls, it was filled in with dirt. And then on top of that tier, like a cake, think wedding cake, okay? Then on top of that, there was another tier that was built, and that was filled in with dirt. And so you got these discs sitting one on top of another and making uh, like concentric uh, arrangement until you get to the very top and it's a small circle and it was filled with dirt. So there's, there's nothing inside it. You can't get inside of it. It's solid. All of it was exterior and you went from one level to ascend to the next level to ascend to the next level. Except this was not open to the public. This was all built, all of these people in this region built these because this was a structure that made it uh, uh, convenient for their gods to climb up these steps. It was just a, uh, an enlarged, glorified stairway is what it was. Made it convenient for their gods to climb up the steps and go to the top level where there were accommodations there, a bed and, and chairs to sit on. And their, do their god could climb the steps and go up and they, their god could dwell there and lay down and rest there. Or the god could come down and go into the temple that was always located close to the ziggurat. So their god had stairs to ascend and descend. These people that migrated eastward came into Mesopotamia and they said, we want a ziggurat too. We want a tower too. So they built a tower which became known as the Tower of Babel. This tower, to summarize, basically served to connect the people to their God. Thus the language, when it says, whose top may reach unto the heavens, was a common concept among the Mesopotamian ziggurats that they were connecting with God. Now, I don't know what you were taught in Sunday school class, but I remember often being told the story of the Tower of Babel, and these people were trying to build a tower that could reach and get them into heaven. And even as a young child, I thought, my, my, what lofty aspirations to build a tower that you think can actually reach heaven and God comes down and says before they build a tower big enough to reach heaven I'm going to put a stop to this nonsense they'll never reach it through this tower but that that is not at all what this was about this was not about trying to get to heaven, it was just trying to build a structure where their God could dwell, and that God, by coming down and using the accommodations that they had there, therefore could, uh, could connect with the people. That was the connection between their God and earthlings. Ziggurats were often carrying names that bore out this concept of connecting with God. The Babylonian ziggurat had a name which meant the temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. Uh, the one found at Larsa was uh, a name which literally meant temple which links heaven and earth. The one at Sippar meant the temple of the stairway to pure heaven. So you can see it is obvious repeatedly that these temples were intended to connect their gods with the people. So the people get together and they build the famous Tower of Babel. Now, why did God get so upset? That's the logical question that's going to pop into our minds as we read this. 
Why was God upset? It's not that we're puzzled and think, why should God be upset? We can see a lot of reasons why he might be upset, but we want to know really, specifically, what really set God off about this. Many people have suggested it was the pride of the people that offended God. Because you can find in the fourth verse this kind of language being used. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Or really what it should have been, a tower unto the heavens as a tribute, not reaches. That's a, that word doesn't even occur in the Hebrews. So strike that out. You can blot it out of the pen if you want to. It, it's not a part of the original language. A tower unto the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so this language that is used, even in the next few verses, let us, let us, let us. And some have read that and said, these people had a real egocentric problem. It's all about let us do this. And they have concluded it must have been this horrible pride that really set God off. But I have to remind you, there were a lot of other people in that world that were just as prideful as that. And God was not dealing with them in that manner. So we cannot really conclude either from the language used nor from the examples around them that it was really pride was the main issue. Because after all, it's just language. What other language would they have used to say that this without sounding somewhat egotistical? That's inconclusive. Was it disobedience? Some theorize that God wanted the whole earth populated and these people migrated east, but they only went to Mesopotamia and they settled. They didn't have any plans on going any farther. And God said, uh-uh, I told you, get out there and populate the world and you don't seem to be interested in going any farther, so therefore, I'm going to force you to go. So he comes down and he confuses their language and they can't communicate with one another. They get angry and they decided, well, we're just going to leave here and they are dispersed. And God says, there, now I've accomplished it. But the problem is that didn't accomplish God's purpose at all. Populating the world doesn't have anything to do with dispersing people to live sparsely. That doesn't advance the population of the world. That just scatters them. So really, his purpose was not just to scatter them and say, therefore, my purpose has now become accomplished. I've got a few people in more places than I had once before. So we dismissed that. It wasn't really a matter of just not populating the earth because they were continuing to have children. They were populating, and as time would go by, that population would continue to migrate. So that wasn't really their failure. Their failure. But I will suggest to you that there is an offense here. There's something about that building. There's something about that ziggurat. There's something in this that caught God's attention. And he said, I'm not going to permit this. These people, they were all aware of the story of creation. They were all aware of God. They knew who God was. Didn't know a lot about him. He hadn't revealed himself, but they knew God. They knew who's the creator. They knew this is the one that spoke things into existence, fashioned the sun and the moon and the earth and the stars. 
They knew God. And they come and they build this ziggurat. And they begin to redefine who God is and what he's like. These people who should have known better than to buy into the perverted religion of the Mesopotamians actually bought into their religion. They moved in there and became like them. They borrowed the concept of the ziggurat from them. They built their temple and they built their ziggurat and they redefined God. Instead of seeing God as this infinitely higher and greater being than themselves, they tried to make God more like themselves. This ziggurat equipped with this place where their God could come down and reside in this top level and come down the steps once in a while and visit their temple was not the God at all that created Adam and Eve and hung the moon and the sun and the stars in place and created man and breathed the breath of life into him. This was not the God at all that they knew of. I find it fascinating that God was far more indulgent of those who created their own mythical gods than those who, knowing better, tried to redefine the God they knew. Trying to pervert the truth of God. That was the breaking story, breaking point of this story as they took the real, true God and turned him into something else. Let me show you in the book of Romans, what Paul says about this. Not this ancient situation, but the principle of redefining God. Paul says in that 18th verse of the first chapter, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since we may be, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, things like his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that the people are without excuse. Now listen to what he says. For all they, the, although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And essentially what Paul is saying, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And, God, and Paul says, therefore, because they have toyed with the truth of God about God. They've tried to make God something else other than what he truly is. That's what angered God. And Paul saw the same dynamic happening in his day. God's anger is unleashed because people are trying to make God something other than what he truly is. God's offended when we remake him in our own concept, our own image, when we define him according to our own imaginations. Modern-day theologian Calvin, Calvin Miller wrote this little poem. 
Here's a couple of, here's a stanza from that poem. He says, the more gods become like men, the easier it is for men to believe the gods. When both have only human appetites, then rogues will worship rogues. Because when you make God more like yourself, he's easier to relate to. But when the God becomes more like you, you're nothing but a loser worshiping a loser. God has to remain infinitely higher than us. He's holy. He's righteous. He's far above us. And the offense is bringing God down to human level. Now we're living in a culture today that is aggressively changing the truth of God into a lie. They're changing God's attitude towards sin to be more accommodating like man's attitude. They're changing God's word to accommodate their lifestyle, no longer believing that his word is fixed and unchangeable and the truths are timeless, but they're saying they evolve with time. They evolve with man because they're making God more like man. They're painting this twisted caricature of a non-judgmental God of love and endless tolerance. They're changing the truth of God into a pack of lies. And if God was ever offended by humans misrepresenting him and making him into a deity of their own liking and their own imagination, then he is offended by what people are doing to him today. Hollywood gets a big kick out of lampooning God, making God into their own silly, ridiculous image. There was a movie put out several years ago. George Burns played God. Now, need I say anything more? Some cigar-smoking, snarky, smarmy old man playing God because Hollywood toys with the truth of God. You look at any other Hollywood movie that is somewhat humorously based, and they always have God depicted in a very human, fallible, laughable manner. They don't picture God as being austere and holy and righteous and unwilling to put up with the buffoonery of mankind. They don't picture God like that, turning the truth of God into a lie. When we lose our holy awe of the Most High, we put ourselves in deep jeopardy. He is holy. He is righteous. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is above all. He's above all other so-called deities of the world. He has no equal. There's none like him. He's awesome. He's wonderful. We should be deeply offended when the world drags him down to their level and they reinvent him to their own specifications. I can't stop the world, but I can address what the church is doing. What are you doing about God? Because the way you live says what you believe about God. If you live such a life, do you think you can get away with living like a person of this world whose interests are vested in this world and still you're okay with God. You're inventing God. When you think God doesn't care about the kind of language you use 
or the way you treat your brothers and sisters. You're inventing another God. What do you, think? you think that God is the kind of God that at the end of this life, everybody goes to heaven. You're inventing another God. You think that there's a God that is, is just nothing but the embodiment and the definition of love, but there is no judgment from God. You're inventing another God. He's holy. I wonder if you live like he's a holy God. Because if you don't, you don't really believe he's holy. He's a God that hates sin. If you don't live like God hates sin, you don't believe in the real God, the true God. My God is a righteous God. Do you give him the kind of respect he deserves? You can govern your own attitude about God. You can't change the world's attitude about God. You can govern your attitude. If you truly believe God is a holy God, that governs your lifestyle. If you truly believe that, look at the people who've been in the presence of God. The prophet Isaiah, who catches a glimpse of God. And he bows down and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. The prophet, the godly prophet. We don't see any scandal in his life. We look at him as a godly man. And in the presence of God, he begs for mercy from this righteous, holy being. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Totally undone by the presence of God. Moses, who is confronted by the presence of God through the burning bush and the bush speaks out to him and says take your shoes off and Moses didn't argue with him he figured that's the very least he can do in the presence of this holy righteous being you can't get in the presence of God and think it has no impact on your conduct and your lifestyle as long as you go and punch your card for Sunday, you're okay for a week. It doesn't work that way. I wonder, people, if we have the sense of being in the presence of a holy God this morning. I see a lot of things go on in church that I think some certain people sometimes have forgotten where they are and whose presence we are in. We don't act like that if we remember we're in the presence of God. He's worthy of our praise. Let me say, He alone is worthy of our praise. And I will not bow my knee to another, only to Him. Would you bow your heads and worship team? Would you come?